Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. The Adventure of the Speckled Band, a plot recap. Watson is awakened at 7am by Holmes one morning to tell him that there's a, uh, a a client sat in the sitting room. Helen Stoner lives in Stoke Moran, in uh, well, probably just outside Leatherhead, it's hinted at. Um, and she's travelled up by the first train that morning because she's petrified. She is quite a young woman, but her hair is grey with fear. Uh, and she tells of the house she lives in. She lives with her stepfather, Dr. Grimsby Roylett. And up until two years ago, she lived with her twin, uh, Julia, um, who uh, lived in fear of uh, Dr. Roylett. She says that her mother was killed in a railway accident uh, a while ago, and that um, since then, uh, the, the twins have been basically bullied pretty much by uh, by the doctor, uh, refusing to let them go anywhere and um, just basically just being a bully around the place. Groomsby Roylett met uh, their mother while he was in India, um, where he was training to be a doctor, and she um, uh, his, his temper was so bad that he actually beat a butler to death um, and had to have several years in prison because of that. She even says that until quite recently she threw a blacksmith, he threw a blacksmith over a bridge um, just over a basic argument. He's a very tall, very wide, imposing man, and therefore not an ideal stepfather to have. Two years earlier, um, Julia died. Um, they've been uh, Julia was engaged to to a man, and um, the the night the night she died, she'd come into uh, Helen's room and they were talking about the wedding that was going on. When Helen said to her, "Are you aware of a low whistle and a, metal- a metallic clang?" Um, uh, because I can hear that, and it's a bit concerning. I don't know what it is. Um, and they're very concerned because Roylett has some very, very strange friends and, and, and hobbies. So he's very, very friendly with the local gypsies, um, who obviously they're quite scared of, which obviously is a little bit bit racist, but there you go. And um, he also, because of his time in India and a correspondent he, he, he deals with, he's been given the gift of a baboon and a cheetah who walk around State Moran, uh, Slope Moran of a night, um, and they're, obviously they're quite scared of both animals. But Helen says, yes, that there's this strange noise, and I don't know what it is, but they're, quite, they're both scared anyway. That's just because of the, of, you know, the nature of the man they live with. Um, but in the middle of that night, um, she hears a scream, and she goes into um, Helen's room. But Helen comes out, and um, she looks horrified, white, and pretty much collapses, but not before she says it was the band, the speckled band. 
Holmes questions the, this and, and to go as much as detail as possible. Um, and she said, um, well, was that always her room? And she says, no, she she moved into that room um, and there'd been some alterations made. Um, but, uh, you know, she was, she, was, she was killed in that room when all the windows and doors were locked, nothing could get in or out. Um, and um, something that in that room killed her. He then asks her why, you know, she's the, two years later, why this is um, so much concern to her. Um, and she says, well, they're doing some alterations to the west wall of the house, and now I have to sleep in this room too. A salient point here is the fact that Roylet would lose money through an inheritance if the daughters, not his daughters, his stepdaughters, were to marry. So therefore, he's managed to, because of um, Julia's death, um, he actually gets to keep hold of some money. But um, during the coroner's report, they, they, they obviously everybody knows what Roylet's reputation is, and obviously he's, he's a convicted murderer already. But they decide, the coroner says that there's nothing in there to show any foul play whatsoever, and that she died of unnatural causes, but they can't figure out what that is. So Holmes sends Helen back to Stoke Moran, but promises that he'll be there in the early afternoon as he's got some business to do before he comes down, which is actually to go and check the will um, in the local sort of office around there. They sit, they sit down, she leaves, and they sit down to discuss the case when suddenly a huge man who fills the doorway comes in and asks which one of them is Holmes. Um, they surmise immediately that it's Dr. Grimsby Roylet, and um, he says, you know, he's a... Uh, uh, I, I know you're, you're Holmes, you're Holmes the busybody, the, <laughs> I love the Scotland Yard jack-in-office, which is a great name. Um, Holmes isn't the least bit perturbed by this, but Roylet, to show his strength, um, picks up the uh, the poker and bends it. He leaves, and uh, Holmes says that, you know, he's not that concerned, that could, and he bends it back, because old, old Sherlock's quite strong in the fingers, as we know, because of his, you know, his boxing and fencing days. But later that day, they travel down to Stoke Moran to go and see what's happening. Um, they meet Helen there, and Roylet is in that bout, and they examine the room, uh, and they examine the windows. Watson and Holmes look at the windows and realise that they use a knife and say nothing can get in. There is absolutely no chance that anything can get in. Anything that, that is a problem uh, or a threat to them is inside the house. They then go into the room, and immediately Holmes drops to the floor and starts examining the floorboards. He's all over the place, and he notices that there's a bell pole he asked how long the bell pull's been there, and she said about two years ago, just around the time that Julia died. He pulls the bell, and it doesn't ring. In fact, it's not actually connected to anything. It is just a rope coming off the ceiling. He then notices a very small ventilator as well, and remembers that um, she, uh, Helen had told him that Roylet, um, they, uh, that Julia could smell Roylet's cigar. Um, later on, he, see, he tells Watson, like you know, that that was a clue straight away because how can you smell smoke in a locked room? There must be something connecting the rooms, uh, which obviously he realises it is the um, the ventilator. He also notices later on the fact that the bed has been clamped to the floor, so the bed can't move. But they still don't know what this is. Again, he's still thinking the, the gypsies, the speckled band, being the bandanas, etc. Or, you know, something to do with the cheetah or the baboon. Um, so they go and stay in the local Crown Inn across the road, and they give Helen Stoner some instructions to go and sleep in her own room, uh, unbeknown to Roylet. And they will creep in in the night, and they will spend the night in the uh, the room of death, as it were. Um, they duly do this, and they sit in a darker room, Holmes and Watson. Obviously, they can't smoke or do anything like that. Holmes sits on the bed. Watson sits in a chair with a, with a, um, a pistol next to him. And then at 3 a.m., they wait waiting for three hours. They hear a metallic clang. Then they um, hear like a, a whistle, 
and then Holmes sees it before Watson does. Something comes down the rope. Um, Watson sees it straight. Sorry, Holmes. As I say, Holmes sees it straight away, and he's got his cane with him, and he lashes at it, and it's a puff adder. It's sorry, it's a swamp adder. He um, attacks it. it. The snake goes back up to the uh, goes back up the rope again through the ventilator, but this time it goes into Roylet's room, and Julie kills him. He then explains what exactly happened when he tells Helen Stoner the next day, and um, he ends the story by telling Watson, in some ways, I may be seen to have caused the murder of Dr. Grimsby of Grimsby Rodders, but it will not weigh heavily upon my conscience. My guest this week to discuss the speckled band is Bonnie McBird. Bonnie's had a long career in the entertainment industry, first as a feature film development exec at Universal, and then a screenwriter where she's the original writer of the film Tron. She's also an Emmy-winning producer, actor, and theatre director. She's best known in the Sherlock world for her full-length Sherlock Holmes novels for HarperCollins. Following the success of Art in the Blood in 2015, and then Unquiet Spirits in 2017, and last year's The Devil's Due, which the Washington Post called the best Sherlock Holmes novel of recent memory, Bonnie is currently working on the fourth in her series, The Three Locks. She's loved Sherlock Holmes since childhood, when as a schoolgirl in her native California, she read the entire canon at the age of ten which is more than I have. She's a member of many Sherlockian organisations, including the renowned Baker Street Irregulars and Ash in the US, and also a member of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, where she lives much of the time. Bonnie, welcome to Sherlock from Adelaide to Amberley. It's, it's a, huge, a, a huge, huge privilege to have you on here. Um, and I should start um, with an apology, really, um, because I'm afraid we're going to be talking about Tron for a few minutes. And I know it was a long time ago, um, but if um, if the twelve year old me realised I would have this opportunity at some point to speak to the person who actually wrote from, uh, then and I passed it up, I'd never be able to forgive myself. I'll, I'll tell you just briefly um, what the what Tron meant to me really, and it's the biggest compliment I think I can ever pay. Is for a very very brief second, you usurped Star Wars for me. Oh the Empire Strikes Back, actually, um, I actually ended up looking at Tron figures in my local to- toy store, as well as Torn Torns and things like that, and Imperial Pro Droids. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> how, how, how did that come about then? Did you did you sort of, did you write it for, obviously you wrote the, the story, did you sort of write it with the film in mind? Uh, it, it began life as a screenplay, so yes, it was, yeah, it, was, okay. it was always going to be a film, yes. Um, um, so, so how, you wanted to know how it came about? Yes, please. Um, well, I was working at Universal Studios at the time. I was a story editor uh, in the feature film department. I was uh, the assistant to the head of the story department. And then I was working directly later on directly for the head of feature films, Ned Tannen. Um, and so what I was doing was acting as an editor on all the feature film screenplays that were being developed at the studio. So do notes and so forth. And at one point, um, somebody brought in a young filmmaker, an animator from Boston named Steven Lisberger, and they put us together in a room and said, hey, we work on a story about lightning. <laughs> because he had a way to, with with backlit animation, to create a very good lightning effect. So oh, okay. So we started working together, we hit it off. And so um, I'd been at Universal four years, like left to do a couple of movies with Steven, and we formed uh, an alliance to do those. One of them uh, was Tron. Uh, at the beginning, Tron was nothing but a um, an animated backlit figure that looked a little bit like the Michelin Man. The t- you know, yes, that's right, yep. 
And uh, it was created by Stephen in Boston to be uh, an animated character for an ad for a radio station. It had nothing to do with the Video Warrior at that time. But then he showed me that ad and he said, you know, I want to make a movie with this character. His name is Tron and he has something to do with video games. And that's what I've got so far. <laughs> and, um, now, I had been interested in computers uh, for a long time. At Stanford, I studied um, computer programming with a man named Donald Knuth, who is he's quite famous, actually. Uh, and I was really interested in, com and I tried to introduce computers to uh, Universal to do their cataloging of the story development department, but they didn't want to hear it yet. <laughs> anyway, so I was interested in computers anyway. So started doing research. There was one computer uh, store in all of LA. Went there and I read about, uh, in a book by Ted Nelson, I read about a number of interesting things going on in the computer world up in Northern California. Now this was pre-Silicon Valley. Uh, there were a few companies, but they were, there was nothing, uh, there was no, there were no personal computers. There were homebrew. No computers yeah people put together with parts and this was what that store was about so i read about a man named alan Kay, who was at xerox park and i went up there and visited and he's the man uh, credited with inventing the personal computer and i got the tour of all his stuff um and that was the same tour that Steve Jobs got in the same month that I got it, by the way. Wow. <laughs> Talk about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Now, Alan uh, is in the next room right now because we I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, we worked together on Tron. I hired him as the technical consultant, and we started working together for nearly two years on this script. And um, and we fell in love while we're doing that. Anyway, um, so, so I worked on it for two years, and I did a bunch of different drafts. Um, uh, I investigated different ways to physically do it. Uh, Stephen had a fantastic uh, animation studio with traditional, you know, Disney Disney style character animation, and he wanted to combine this with some with a backlit technique to make these really beautiful um, characters look kind of there's kind of neon against a dark background. So we were, he was working on that, and I found a, the latest green screen um, technology of the time, uh, which is a guy named Paul Vlahos, and we did some test shoots and so forth. Anyway, so I worked on it for a couple of years, and then gradually uh, Stephen and I sort of had a parting of the ways. We didn't really agree creatively on the... Um, on the direction, the big direction of the film. Uh, I had originally written it for Robin Williams, um, who I had seen as a young comic while I was at Universal. He had not hit yet. And I was knocked out by him and I created a character for him that falls inside of the computer and then has to get out. So anyway, but it was sort of a, a different tone, basically. Uh, and then, the, but the character of Alan, uh, which was played by Bruce Boxleitner in the film, yep. based on my Alan. <laughs> so, so certain elements, the bit and so the basic storyline, you know, I created and worked on, as I said, for a couple of years. Um, but then, you know, I wasn't, uh, it, it, the thing moved forward and it, it took on a kind of quasi-religious uh, epic um, importance to, to Stephen. And this was not a direction that I, I saw it as a more traditional, um, some com combination of, uh, I don't know, I guess humor and um, and science. <laughs> uh, you know, so quite a, quite a lot of that was edited out. But but I nevertheless I, I was pleased with the final product in the sense that I thought it was beautifully. I mean, the the visuals were fantastic. 
And fortunately, um, uh, the, you know, uh, Jeff Bridges did ad lib some of the humor. They excised all the humor, and, but he ad libbed some back in. I know because I read every script they did since mine, because uh, there was a Writers Guild arbitration, and you you're supposed to read all the all the scripts. So I, you know, I was glad that some humor did get kind of eased back into it. So that's basically the story. I worked on it for two years, and then I went on and did a production company for ten years, and was an actor, did a, a whole bunch of things, wrote some plays, and so forth. So long, you know, uh, many miles <laughs> traversed since that movie. It, it, it was such a, um, a revolutionary thing. So I, I was obviously a child when it came out. And I can start actually remember when uh, my, my friend said to me, there's this film out and it, it's your standard film like Star Wars, which of course was the only film in the world, as far as I was concerned at that age. And then there's a slight pause event and it's a video game at the same time. Because uh, uh, obviously, obviously we were still, you know, getting used to Atari in the UK at that point. Um, even though the technology had moved on so much. So it, it really was absolutely groundbreaking and breaking. And, uh, well, I, I'm and, yeah. so glad. Yeah, a lot, lot of people remember it very, very fondly. And, um, you know, I was at Universal when uh, Ned Tannen uh, had a huge hit with uh, George Lucas's first uh, major film, the uh, which was um, American Graffiti. Yeah. That's kind of made uh, Ned Tannen at the, at the studio. Ned was head of feature films and I was working directly for him. And But he turned down George Lucas for Star Wars. Oh, <laughs> he oh turned, yeah. He said, no one wants to see a you know, space opera, then that they'll just die. And, and so I guess he took it to, it was Paramount, right? Yeah. So, um, so I went to the screening, the, the screening of Star Wars with Ned Tannen and sat next to him. And the Star Wars began to play, and you know, ten minutes in, he he's sinking into his chair, <laughs> <laughs> and I look over, and he's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> well, well, a, well, famously called the, the actors thought it was rubbish as well, and then no, they no, saw no, it. Oh no, no, he didn't think it was rubbish. He knew. It was no, no, rubbish. when they were making it, the actors thought, "Well, no, well you know, you what's know going no, on? they didn't they didn't know what it was because they yeah. didn't have all the script in hand, but but. I'm telling you that the, the head of the studio, Ned Tannen, who watched was watching what he had given up. Ten minutes in, he was like, "This is a hit movie. This is not just a hit movie. This is a huge hit movie." <laughs> and and it, and I remember walking out of the screening of that, thinking, "Oh my God, I wish I'd worked on that film. That's what the, one of the best things I've ever seen." Yeah. And so it was hugely inspiring to me. And you know what? One of the things about Star Wars that you know that I endeavored to put in the script of, of Tron was really that sense of fun, that sense of humor, and that's to me what what was missing with Tron. And I, you know, I still have some regrets, but I didn't have control over it at that point. So, um, but in any case, I loved Star Wars also, and I just thought, you know, this is. <laughs> this is the way to make movies. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's the way to do it. It was so so much fun. So originally, you know, our original concept of Tron was, I would say, more in the tone of that. Um, uh, but uh, Stephen sort of went in a different direction at a certain point. But anyway, so that's the Tron story. That's the Tron story. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna obviously you must be asked about this all the time. So I'm gonna drag us back to Sherlock. Oh good. Um, before I before I start with your own Sherlock stuff, you are the first guest I've ever had. Firstly, to win Emmys. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go through my previous guests. No, not, not John. None of them have won Emmys that we can go through uh, at the moment. And also, you, you are certainly the first guest we've ever had on coming live from Baker Street. Yes. Well, Running actually, up on Baker Street at the moment. Well, I'm actually on Chiltern Street, which is the next street over. That's parallel. good enough. 
That's good I'm enough for twelve hundred. I'm, I'm looking at the entrance to the Baker Street station from my window here. Um, uh, Chiltern Street. But I live. I live in an 1890s building, and uh, this street was called East Street in Holmes's time, and uh, it was a kind of a service road for Baker Street. And the, these buildings, the buildings I'm in now, in now are, were built in 1890. So they're very period. <laughs> Same as him, in fact, pretty much. Uh, we, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was well, certainly in Holmes. Well, the, the first short stories was 1891. So, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they start, you know, Holmes and, and Watson got together quite a bit before that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yes. But this is definitely right in their, in their time. <laughs> You are in there. Your, 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 your commitment to this podcast is fantastic. I really like the fact you've done that. That's the way I choose to view it anyway, that you've done this. Um, you're also, um, you, you've written um, three Sherlock stories at the moment. With how is, how is the fourth one coming along? As a writer myself, I'm always keen to ask this question. Well, they're full-length novels, and number yeah. four is uh, is coming along quite well. In fact, I just had a big breakthrough on it in the last couple of weeks. Number four is... Um, uh, is going to be a lot of fun. It's set in London and Cambridge, and I'm very excited about it. Because I, th I think that's always the moment. I've written two novels, and um, I always think there's a phase when it starts to write itself a bit more, rather than you sort of, you know, slamming your shoulder into the boulder of the story until something gives. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you've got to that I, stage. I always kind of run into uh, uh, difficult waters uh, at about. Uh, between two thirds and three fourths of the way in. Yeah. Um, and I have I have a structure in my head, and I I um when I write I'm it's a combination of pantsing. Do you have that expression here? Pantsing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, pantsing and and plodding ahead. So mainly uh, I get my best work done as a pantser, and nobody nobody guesses that apparently when you work on that Sherlock Holmes because it sounds it seems as though it's all clockwork, but um it. it I reverse engineer it, basically. <laughs> okay, okay. I mean, and to be honest, I've, I've, I haven't read them yet. I've ordered them. Ah. Um, and they're not here yet because of the current situation we're in, where the post either arrives the next day or within three months. I'm not quite sure which one it is. Um, so can you give uh, our listeners a sort of overview of what they are? Are they contemporaries of the time? or? Yeah, I'd be happy to tell you about them. Um, I uh, I set out to write the first one. I'm not really anticipating a series, but then then that's what HarperCollins uh, ended up asking for. So um, the but I wrote the first one, and I I I have loved Conan Doyle. I've loved Sherlock Holmes since I was ten, and yeah. I inhaled the entire canon, and have read it over and over. And I decided that um, I wanted to sit down and write a novel. And I set up before, like, what are, what are, they're, they're absolutely uh, set in the original time period. And my goal was to write something that would not uh, contradict anything in canon and that would actually fit into the chronology of the canon. But I also wanted to write them as young men so that these are set in the 1880s yeah. um, and they're in their 30s. And um, so I my goal was to approximate the best that I could, uh, the voice and the style of the originals, uh, not to contradict canon, and um, and to basically deliver on what I identified as the promises of these stories. I mean, there are certain, in fact, I spent some time thinking about the speckled band and what, you know, in the context of these promises, you know, that you come to a Sherlock Holmes story expecting certain things and wanting certain things and, you know, how Conan Doyle delivered on those promises and how I chose to do that in my books was very, 
uh, it was calculated, it was really, really thought about in advance. Um, you know, and what is it that we love, you know, so much about these these stories? And there's a, there's a whole bunch of things, but I, we can get into that in a minute. But anyway, so I sat down to write uh, as close to the original as possible. And the other thing is, you know, when you say to a writer, why would you why would you spend time, you know, emulating another writer? Why don't you just write something original? And the answer for me is um, emulating a genius is probably the highest challenge you can take because I think I think Conan Doyle is a genius and it's it's hubris in some ways to try to emulate him. But on the other hand, it really raises your game because you start to, in the analysis, um, realize what it is that he did that is so magical. Uh, and so I feel like it's helped me as a writer. I mean, I didn't do it to, for that reason. I did it because it's fun and I love it. And also as Nicholas Meyer once said, you know, why do we write these things? It's because we want more. Um, so, yeah, that's you know, thing, yeah. <laughs> so there's that, but, but also just as an artistic challenge, um, it's just really exciting to do this. I, I, I love him because um, uh, obviously you're an editor yourself as well, but I, I love the economy of language. You know, yes. He gets so much story in about 20 pages. It's, it's unbelievable. The economy of language is absolutely uh, essential. You know, it's interesting that he has been called cinematic in his writing, but of course the earlier stories predated cinema. He wasn't thinking of movies when he was writing these, but they're called that for a couple of reasons. One is they have more dialogue in them than uh, other than typical contemporary writers yeah. this time. Way more dialogue and very natural dialogue. You can hear it. You just hear the characters and speaking. The other reason is that he is um, succinct and he's very visual. And I think a lot of times when people try to emulate uh, Conan Doyle, they get hung up on, well, you know, Victorian vocabulary is a bit more, um, um, well, it's just more educated basically than, than typical modern vocabulary. Yeah. You know, and so they get hung up on these and the sentences are longer, um, but and they're, they're kind of more complicated in, the, in their structure. But if you get hung up on that, you forget the fact that he's moving a story along at quite a pace <laughs> um, because he is essentially, essentially a storyteller. And um, he's not. Uh, the other thing about Conan Doyle that makes him so incredibly readable is that he chose as his narrator a man of action. So Watson doesn't wax poetic endlessly about the skyline and the sunsets and the oh. blah, blah, blah. You know, he, he, he sets you in the scene very distinctly. Like, you know the weather, you know what things look like. You're, you're in the mood. He sets the mood, but he then gets off it and gets onto the story. So, I mean, I think he's, he's made so many incredible choices as, as a writer. And that when you start to really look at what those choices are, you realize, wow, that's why these are <laughs> these are still popular 130 years later, and uh, why we love them so much. Well, well, at this point of our podcast, I usually ask um, how you got into Sherlock Holmes, but you know, you've, you've answered that pretty well already. Um, but the second question is, and I think this is going to be the easiest question, the easiest one you're going to be asked today, to be honest. Did you enjoy the Speckle Band? Oh, of course. How could you not enjoy the speckled band? How could you not enjoy the speckled band? As a 
I'll talk to you about my books later. Should we, should we get into the? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's yeah, I mean, well, you know, it's it's many people's favorite story, and I think it was one of, if not his very favorite story. It was. There's number one. There's number one of yeah. his. Yeah. Yeah, it's on, on on his list. Yeah, and although one in one interview I read, he couldn't remember the name. Of it. Yeah, he, he said it's the one with the serpent. <laughs> yeah, it's not even a serpent. I know. I, know. <laughs> no, I, okay. I think that uh, I, I've gotten this from other quotes from him too. That some, you know, he dashed these things off fairly quickly, and then, um, and writers do do this. I, I've known, I've experienced this myself. That you forget what you've written, or you, you come to it later. It's like, did I write that? I think that he, you know, he actually didn't hold these uh, as dear as say all of us Sherlockians no, no. do. Uh, you know, and he, I think he would be so surprised at the endless amount of interest in writings that have been done about the writing. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was definitely, of course I loved it. And you know, the one of the things, well, I think the main thing about <clears throat> Speckled Band is that, you know, you come to these home stories with uh, expectations. And this particular story delivers on pretty much every one of them. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and all of them have elements of these things, but this one has pretty much all of them. And um, so, do, shall I just go on about this? Well, I was going to say, it's a horror story. It, it is right. a horror story. And I read it again last night, and obviously I've read this hundreds of times, and I was still nervous come the end. Yeah, and that, 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 really, that's the hallmark of a great story. It, it's really scary. He he orchestrates the suspense in in such a beautiful way, um, and you know I I love uh, well the, they're they're called the the adventures of Sherlock Holmes rather than the mysteries of Sherlock yes, Holmes. Yes, yeah. And that is because many of them, not all of them, but many of them, and I think the best ones essentially all have the physical danger in them. Which is which is one of the promises that I vowed to keep in my, in when I wrote my novels is that it's really exciting when there's physical danger not only to the client but to Holmes and Watson themselves and in this particular in in uh, the Speckled Band you have quite a few things happening you have um, the first thing of course is Grimsby Rowlett showing up at 221B and filling the doorway yeah. When we already know he's a murderer, and he's yep. and he threw he threw a blacksmith over a parapet. The blacksmith <laughs> is not a little guy. <laughs> I, I want to know the backstory for that incident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I say, uh, but but a blacksmith's a big guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't casually throw a, per, a blacksmith over a parapet. So we know that, and he's a and here, here he is. Boom! He enters without announcement, fills the doorway, and starts insulting Holmes. This is physical danger right there. And then Holmes meets it, of course, very coolly in the heroic manner that he is. The, the word insouciance was made for this scene, yes. I think. It, it's, it's one of my favourite scenes in the entire canon. It really is. I just love the line, I've heard that the crocus has pr promised well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's so lovely. You know, and they did it so well, I thought, in the, the Granada uh, version. Yeah. So beautiful. They they almost nailed it word for word, actually. Yeah. In that in that particular version, and um, yeah. So it's so funny because Holmes is just like not scared. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not scared of you. You, 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 can, you. you can practically see him examining his fingernails, and you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> he, he love it for this. And Watson's watching this like. You can. He, he doesn't put this thought on the page, but you can kind of infer he's going. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, 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 of course, it's seven a.m. 
Yeah, it's, 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 Paul it's, Watson had a hell of a start to the day. Yeah, he did. Oh, and I got to get, 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 talk to you about that early morning thing because that, that's an interesting thing. But um, no, no, no. So, so, yeah, anyway, so the, going back to the notion of physical danger in, in a number of places in the story. So it starts there and then, then it, you know, the ante, because he's holding a, what is he holding, a stick or a crop? So he's holding a weapon yes. yeah, as, well as, as well as this. He comes forward and then he picks up the poker. And as I recall in the Granada series, Holmes is immediately on guard because he could be you know, killed in about a second with this yeah. thing. Uh, just bam, in the head, he'd be dead. So he, but instead of doing that, the guy just bends it, showing you like, I can break you, Benny. And then what's so fabulous, you know, is what follows, right? <laughs> It's, it's just it's just the greatest piece of one-upmanship ever. Yeah, it is because you know it's practically it is impossible. In fact, they didn't even do that in the actual play that Conan Doyle wrote. No, no. Um, which, oh, which, by the way, I guess your last guest was um, was uh, Les Klinger. Uh, one before, yeah, yeah. So Les and I are friends, and um, we have done together a, a couple of plays. We, we sort of planned to do a series of Sherlock Holmes plays in L.A., and we did the Speckled Band. He, of course, published a nice version of that, um, you know, of, of the actual Arthur Conan Doyle play. And the, in that moment, where the poker, because you can't really bend something back to its original position, it ends up twisted and weird. Yeah. Like, really. And you couldn't actually do that with a poker unless you were Superman. Um, but so, so they didn't, they kind of admitted that or they changed it as I recall. They changed quite a few things for the player. Conan Doyle did. In any case, that scene. So that's the second moment. Or that's the, well, we, we, that's the main moment of danger in the beginning, but then, yeah. but then you have later on, they go, um, they go and, and they're running through the night in in the darkness outside that house, and and you know that it's in the middle of the night. It's very dark. They can't have a lantern. They'd be seen. But there's the cheetah and the baboon. Yes. And so there's wild animals that could kill them easily. And they're running through the darkness to that. And then meanwhile, there's this threat of Roylet himself finding them. And if he found them, can you imagine if he found them trespassing? What being, being, being that he's met them, he's already threatened them in their front room. And exactly. they've had the temerity to go down all this way just to sort of poke him in the ribs some more. And, the, and they're trespassing. So yeah, he, he, would be, he would be legally, uh, you know, it would be all right for him to kill them, basically. Yeah. Uh, so they're in, in total danger. And then... Um, and then, of course, there's that vague threat of gypsies, which we don't know what's happening there. They never really paid that off or, or did anything with it. But uh, yeah, that's that's the MacGuffin, isn't it? That that's yeah, the that's um, it must be them. Yeah. Well, it's not even a MacGuffin. It's just a sort of a red herring, really. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So and, I thought I'll just throw that in and mention it. I think he mentions it three times. Yeah, and they know um, as if to get it into the system. But but me mentioning them like that in the con in the context of that time and place, it was a little bit frightening because people people were a bit frightened of, of gypsies and um, you know considered criminals and so forth. So yeah. so um, they were they that was another frightening element. Then they get in there and uh, they're going to stay in the room itself in the pitch black and they don't completely Holmes actually is pretty sure what's happening. But, yeah. uh, but he's not 100% sure he's going to be able to stop it or that they'll, you know, and so forth. Um, there's a really great line in here, um, let's see if I can find it in here, where he uh, he mentions about the danger to Watson. Oh, you're reading my mind, Bonnie. You really are. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if I think in the same thing here. 
Yeah, so, so he says, I'm trying to find that line, but he says something about, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm hesitating to ask you to come. Oh, boy, you're the perfect guest. I've got it written down in front of me. I yeah. love that scene. It's just a so tiny pause. What is the line? It's something like um, I was I was oh I, I read it last night um, uh, but I wrote, I wrote down it's just a scene where he says I, I was um, slightly concerned about bringing you along to Tay Watson because you know this is a serious business I will find the line and put it in later on into the notes but yeah. uh, it's, yes. it's, I just love that little divert diversion away from the story as if to say well, by the way I'm worried as much as you are well I love that here's the thing uh, about that too I've, uh, I've got the line here. Go on, John. Um, do you know, Watson, said Holmes, as we sat together in the gathering darkness, I have really some scruples as to taking That's you tonight. It. There is a distinct element of danger. Yes, yes. Beautiful. Exactly. And, it, and, and you know, it's not just the adventurousness of that. And this, it's the fact, and this is my next point, really, is that this, um, this particular story highlights the friendship. So yeah. beautifully. And, you know, Sherlockians, because I hang out with them a lot, <laughs> um, Sherlockians, all of us, I think, peruse the stories with antenna out for the friendship, because the friendship being possibly the most, um, uh, the, the, the thing that elevates these things into classics uh, and makes you care and want to read more. It's not just the deductions. I really think the deductions are important, but they're not the most important thing. It's the friendship between these two men. And, and this, this story ha just has it so beautifully. It has it over and over. It has it from the very beginning when, when, when Holmes wakes him up out of his sleep, he yeah. comes into his bedroom and wake. These are these are close friends. These are people who live together and get along, um, and more than get along. And so, um, I I just love that element of this. Um, he's he's done it in it's like three or four places here. He's done it. Oh, when they're sneaking across the um, across the. Uh, uh, in the darkness, they're sneaking across to the to the house. Um, you know, they. Let's see, where is this? I'm gonna find this. Oh yeah, here we go. Oh yeah, the distinct element of danger. That's that one. Um, yeah, here's this one. Um, so they're they're sneaking across, and he says, "My God!" I whispered, "Did you see it?" Holmes was for the moment as startled as I. His hand closed like a vice upon my wrist in his agitation. Then he broke into a low laugh and put his lips to my ear. It's a nice household, he murmured. That is the baboon. <laughs> so it's this very intimate moment between them. It was like, we're, we're terrified. We're like little boys sneaking in, you know? And it's like, but we're also terrified. And it's this lovely little, you know, little moment between them. It's, and it's, also, it's beautiful. It's absolutely a beautiful um, way of just getting across that closeness. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and it brings in the reader as well to say, you know, you're, you're with us too, by the way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You're right with us, and, and they're the best of friends. And then that they take this, they take this uh, room at the inn, which has one bedroom and a sitting room. And they're sitting, and then they're in there in the, in the dark, looking out, waiting for the window light to to light up. I mean, you just have these intimate moments where you go, okay, these guys, <laughs> these guys are such good friends. They're having such a good time. And. Uh, and anyway, so the friendship is something that, you know, that in terms of my writing that, that I have taken from Conan Doyle and I really feel is absolutely critical to making these stories work and making these feel like Conan Doyle because it's one of the things that he's done uh, as a writer to 
to fully attach us to these stories. You know, people spend a lot of time discussing the deductions um, and, you know, they have to be in there because that's sort of the... That's the show off bit, isn't it? Yeah, that's the magic. Yeah, it's it's magic it's magic tricks, but it's not the heart. The heart is really the friendship. Really is. And um and and it, it has to be there, or 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 you uh, you don't really have a home story. So it, it's particularly noticeable in this in the uh, speckled band, I think. Um, now here's something weird. <laughs> um, you know, Sherlockians tend to pick apart these uh, stories, and you have you know we're, we're all of different personality types, right? So we come to these with our, you know, with our, I don't know, our own biases and prejudices, whatever. Yeah. So, so I remember when I started working on my Sherlock Holmes novels, someone said to me, watch out for the railway people. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean railway people? And they said, oh, well, you know, there are people that will really nail you if you get the trains wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, I have my little bedaker guide and I have my various research materials and so on. But then somebody pointed out in one of these notes, I think is it I think it was um yeah, I think it was Les that pointed this out. Because I have yeah, it's, it's in the annotated home, so it will be. Well I have I have two annotated versions with me here in London. I have the uh, one annotated by Richard Lancelin Green, yeah. you know, the Oxford and then I have the I have Les's um, uh, annotations. But there are a couple of others. I don't I don't have them here. I have them in LA, but not in London. Anyway, so uh, I think it was Les that said <laughs> there's some guy that said that in all of the entire Conan Doyle canon, <clears throat> there's only one train schedule that's right. Yeah. And I want to know what it is now. Yeah, yeah, it's not in here. It's not in here because the one in here is wrong, apparently. Actually, I can email him. I forgot I can do that now. Yeah, thanks to this podcast, I can. Have, I have access to him. Yeah. I, I should say that when I did the podcast, I, I know my Sherlock Holmes, but during that podcast, I just let him go. Oh, right. <laughs> Off you go. Oh, here it is. Um, here it is. It's um, Roger T. Clapp and the Curious Problem of the Railway Timetables. I'm, I'm reading from Leslie's thing here. <laughs> refers to the Bradshaw of the period, I, and which I have here, the Bradshaw of the period, and discovering that Holmes's new client could not have followed the route described here at nope. Street by seven. No, no, no. And then it says, um, without... Clap notes that there is only one correct train time given in the entire canon. So that's Les's annotation there. <laughs> I'm going to email him after this. I really am going to do that. So I need to know which one is the correct one. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely fantastic. I also love in, in the annotated version, which I read last night, that um, when um, Julia Stoner, the, the, the um, sister who was killed uh, two years before the story, um, she comes out of the door with, I think she's she's coming out with a, a match yes. in one hand <laughs> and a tallow in the other, and it just says, "How did she open the door?" You know, this fantastic. So, <laughs> I, I laughed so hard when I read that because when you're writing these kinds of things, and because I, I, I run into this all the time, the thing that happens, you're you're writing away, you're writing away. This happens and that, and she said this, and then they discovered that, and all of a sudden, you know, you read it later and you go, "Wait." She was sitting, and now she's standing. Now she's sitting again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the choreography of this is—it's—it's—it um, it, can escape you, and I think, um, you know. But I do think that he did—he did that rarely because because I think he was a visual writer. Uh, this is my yeah. you know, guess, and and some writers, and and I, I'm one of them also, who actually plays this as a movie in their head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's it's it is a film. 
I can absolutely see it. I can see the room. I can see where they're standing, etc. And then sometimes I'll get pulled away into the dialogue or the logic of it, and and then that the visual fades slightly. And when that happens, I have to be really careful because then he's sitting and standing and sitting and standing. <laughs> you know what I mean? These things. So you have to. But every writer makes those mistakes. Oh, every there's there's a famous one in. Um, I'm a big fan of classic Doctor Who. And I used to get the library, the novelization um, books out the library when I was about, when I was probably about the Tron age, shall we say. And uh, on one of my favorite stories is Robots of Death. And it says something like on page 11, then Chubb stood up to address Toos and said, you can't be doing this, etc." And the only problem is that Toos was killed on page four. Sorry, Chubb yeah. was killed on page four. <laughs> it's one of the most famous ones. Right. <laughs> and that, that was written by Terrence Dix, who wrote something like 3,000 books yes. in his life. It, so, it, you know. <laughs> It does happen to everyone. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I mean, it's just funny. And but there are a certain breed of Sherlockians who love to catch these things, you know. And you know, you know that they're reading through these things, looking for that as opposed to yeah. themselves, you know. And that I have to say, as a writer, that pisses me off <laughs> in a big way. Oh, um, I like it when it's someone else, not me. That's <laughs> that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Live with well, that. The, the thing is. Yeah, so, you know, as a writer, you don't want to be defensive about your stuff, but, you you know, you make full effort uh, on these. I do, and I, you know, I read them over, and I have, I have beta readers, and then I have two sets of editors, and then I turn it into my publisher. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very much a due diligence kind of person with these things, and yet still, <laughs> they still there. Oh, someone mistake. will find you. Oh, yeah, well, I have one in the very first chapter of my first book, and I'm so embarrassed about it. Um, and uh, it was it was something about when um, oh Watson said something about his mother and it's like hey his mother's dead what is the matter with you <laughs> you know, he doesn't have a mother and um, and so <laughs> and so one Sherlockian who reviewed that book said you know she made this mistake however Conan Doyle made the same one in, in this story <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I was so relieved and so kind of her to do that. But I, I do still feel embarrassed about that very simple, ridiculous mistake and so early in the first book. But now, that being said, you know, I do, do a lot of due diligence. I endlessly check um, the canon. Now, here's the thing. Conan Doyle didn't have, you know, word search in his entire no. canon up on his computer. No. So we can say, you know, uh, early riser, late riser and figure it out. Um, speaking of which, um, in the Speckled Band, it says that, <clears throat> what does it say here about Holmes being, a, it says he's a, he's a late riser, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and he's in, and in another book, in another story, it says he's early, he's never up, he's rarely up past 10 p.m. and he's an early, and by the time I got up, Watson speaking, uh, he had been out and bre breakfasted and gone out. So he's an early riser in another story. Yeah. So, so, I mean, these kinds of inconsistencies are just rampant throughout the canon, but who cares? You know? Well, like, I was going to say, we, we talk about this every episode. Obviously, um, uh, Janice Wilson and I talked about the moment, the twisted lip with, I think I've mentioned on every show, now where uh, of course uh, his wife calls him james and not john yeah but i i, I like them because but I, I like them in a sort of an affectionate manner i yeah. like the fact he hasn't gone back and changed it i like the fact that moriarty's brother is also called james and he looks <laughs> I, he just likes the word james i've got no I, it, it can't ruin the story it makes me smile at him from across the years if anything yeah, exactly. he's more just sort of here's the story they're great aren't they 
just don't look too closely, otherwise, you know. Well, exactly. And I mean, there's a massive stretching of, of reality in, in many of them and so forth. But nevertheless, you know, again, these promises, he delivers on the big promises. And when he does that, we forgive anything, really. Um, and But the, for those of us trying to, you know, emulate and so forth, you know, naturally, audiences are more stringent about this because, because quite a few people who read pastiche uh, and things like that I write um, are, are of the opinion like, well, you know, nobody can come close and, you know, why are we even trying? And they, they sort of read it in a, <laughs> a state of anger <laughs> as opposed to, you know, like going, hey, I just want another one of these. And I'm about gonna- that, that's what you said before. That just sums it up because um, I, I tell friends that, you know, I'm, I'm doing a podcast where we're going to look at all 56 of the short stories and I say, you can't do all 56 and I just think, I wish there were 156. Yes, exactly. I wish there were three times more the amount than I'm actually going to get to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because even though no, he, um, I was going to mention before, actually, when you were talking about the, the affection between Holmes and Watson, about um, my, my favourite line in The Three Garrods, which is a story I don't particularly like, to be honest, because he's, he's already written that plot twice as it is, uh, about you know getting a man out of a, out of a building while something else goes on. It's when uh, Watson is shot, Yes, and he, and he says something like, "If if that shot had killed Watson, I would gladly have killed you there." And then, and, and, and you know, I think you wouldn't something like you wouldn't leave the room alive. Yeah, they, they, this is yeah, they, yeah, that's they, they, and that and that's the great heartless detective. Yeah, but yeah, he's yeah. Not, he's, he's, he's more he's more happy Watson's okay than actual catching of the criminal for once. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's so, so not a heartless detective, and um, you know, I mean, I, that struggle of the two aspects of his personality is one of the most fascinating things about him, and you know. Um, I've been on lots of panels and you know, discussions about like, what is it? Why is this character so incredibly, you know, um, why does he live for 130 years? Why do we care so much? And why did, why is so much, <laughs> so much written about him and spoken? And I think it's because he himself is a mystery and, you know, and I think we, he has holes that we don't know what they are. Yeah. We don't know his past. And we fill the holes as Conan Doyle presented them with bits of ourselves. So he's like us in this way. He's like me in this way. He's like me in that way. I'm like him in this way, et cetera. And I think we all do that as we read Sherlock Holmes. And um, that allows us into these stories in a more intimate way than pretty much any writer has ever been able to do. Absolutely. We, 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 also, we all want to be his friend as yes. well. well and, and, the, and the good thing about this is that's not going to be an easy thing to be. Exactly. And so, that makes it more interesting too. Well, you know, it's interesting. I find as I read these, I want, yes, I want to be Watson. I want to be his friend, but I also want to have a Watson. I would like to have somebody who admires the best part of me, overlooks the other parts, and is just loyal to the nth degree. I mean, to have a Watson, my God, can you imagine? I, I mean, I think, so So it works both ways. You want to be a Watson, you want to have a Watson. And um, this is, it's just kind of magic what he's done with these characters. Well, well also, I was going to come back to this. Uh, um, I also want to be the cab driver in this story. <laughs> Because, because, because the cab driver gets dialogue. He gets whole lines and everything. And yeah. that's, that never happens. And I think, imagine, imagine just taking those two out to that big, you know, the biggest story they ever have. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I feel like um, Conan Doyle as a person was um, less class-oriented than others of his era. Yeah. By a lot. And he, he was um, he was a very fair, from, from all stories about him, he seems like a very fair-minded and 
you know, kind of non-snobby guy. In fact, a little bit of reverse snobbism, I think it comes out in, um, I think it's the Naval Treaty. Yeah, it's the Naval Treaty where he says, uh, where some guy was like, uh, was nicer than others of his class. He's, a, he's an aristocratic person, he's, but he was seemed nicer than others or something, something like that. In other words, he, he, he's, he can be generous and Watson, you know, sp speaking through Watson, He's basically a kind man and not quick to judge and not quick to, you know, put down. Uh, whereas Holmes, of course, can't tolerate idiots. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's it, you know. That's his line. It is, it is purely on intellect whether or not, you know, and um, right. this is going to come up with, with um, future stories like the illustrious client and, okay. uh, and things like that. And uh, uh, the wedding one, which I can never remember what it's called. Uh, the American Wedding. Um, no, Noble Bachelor. Noble uh, Bachelor Noble as well. Bachelor, yeah, the Noble Bachelor. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, the, I I love the Speckled Band, but it is not my favorite of the stories. Actually, this, this is heresy, Bonnie. This is heresy. I know. Go, what is your favorite then? <laughs> well, you didn't ask me to talk on the favorite one. We <laughs> you talk on this one, and I said yes. I thought I'd give you the most famous one. It is the most famous one, and um, and actually it was quite fun to do the play um, because, uh, you know, there's so many differences, and I don't think playwriting was Conan Doyle's strongest suit. Um, he had a couple of failures, uh, and I guess I guess this this play was okay, did okay, but he had a couple that closed like immediately and stuff, um, because it's interesting what he tried to do the minute he tried to dramatize this this very story is that he he decided it wasn't good enough really but yeah it was. Absolutely. he added a whole front act about an inquest on the on the death and and then he decided he had to stick Holmes in another role that he didn't do um but because of course it, it's hard on stage to do the whole sneaking up to the house at night and the exactly and the danger of the animals and all the stuff but but instead he has Holmes come in as some fake butler and with a with a daughter who is Billy just you know disguised as a girl. It's like what? Yeah. <laughs> you know he came up with stuff that isn't as good as the actual story itself. You know I, probably in service of what he thought was you know doable in the theater, I guess. And and, and he couldn't even get a cheese from a, a baboon. Sorry. You got, he didn't even get the cheetah or the baboon. If so, you know, you, you, you <laughs> yeah. know you're not going to drag them on stage at some point. But uh, nowadays, you know, <laughs> theatrical tricks, although they had plenty then. I mean, they did they did ghosts quite well, for example. Yeah. And so yeah. They had plenty of theatrical tricks back then. But I guess now it could be even more exciting. They could definitely do the nighttime crawl and so forth. But um, but I, guess, I don't know what his thinking was exactly, um, but it... It was a pale imitation of this, of the actual story. Because on the yeah. page, you know, like you said, you know, your flashlight under the covers, you know, reading this through the night, you know, I can't put this down. Um, so it's just so exciting. Do you have that expression? Do you know what I'm saying, flashlight? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just give an example last night. I did tell us that. What is she? Maybe she didn't know what I was talking about. I, I know um, what you mean. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So it's that kind of story, uh, but it wasn't that kind of play, really, unfortunately. Um, well, well, as I say, last night when I was reading it, I was getting text messages off a friend of mine who ended up saying, "Why aren't you answering me? Why are you ignoring me?" And I felt, I felt it's it's because they've just gone into Helen Stoner's bedroom. Yeah, because I'm reading this book now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to talk 
to anyone while I'm reading the speckled band. I, I know there's going to be a, um, a swamp hatter coming in at any minute. Yeah. And, and, and also, I think the, the, one of the great things about this story is is just how ingenious it is. As in, you know, it is almost the perfect murder. Yes, it, it yes. Uh, and the, cla- so it, the clamped bed is actually, it's horrible, the idea of the, he clamped the bed to the floor. Yes, actually, it's so interesting, because I was just about to say that very thing, you know, is it's like he, he gathered the clues, you know, the the, 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 um, the bell pole that was not a real bell pole. Yeah. The, the tiny little thing that the... the, the um, uh, the ventilator. Yeah, the ventilator between the two rooms. Although that was, as they said, possible. I mean, you, you, they sometimes did ventilators between rooms, or at least those, remember those windows that they have above the yeah. doorways? Because you wanted air circulation throughout your, your house. Yeah. But So it could be there, but that in combination with the bell pull, in combination with the bed clamped to the floor. So he, 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 he got it at that point. Uh, but he still wasn't sure exactly the nature. Was it a snake, a lizard, something, or yeah, something? He, did, he didn't know what was going to come through. Something is coming through. I don't know what. Although the, the milk was a giveaway, slightly possibly. Not really, because no snakes don't drink milk. <laughs> They're not actually. If you want to be picky about it, Bonnie, yes, I suppose you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but not that not that Helms would have an encyclopedic knowledge of snakes. No. But, no. but and 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 Conado wants you to believe that the snake did go for the milk and that was actually something that would even draw the snake to the place but in in reality that's that's not the case and in fact one of the notes i think it's uh lancelin green's notes said uh you know snakes would they might drink milk if there's no water but they're not going to be drawn to milk there's nothing you know that you know it's not a training device like dog biscuits or something yeah exactly yeah so so, uh yeah, you know, yeah, you can't really do that. And the, and the other note was that um, you wouldn't keep a snake in a lot in a uh, safe. It would no. first suffocate, and second of all, y- how would you open it and get it out without getting killed? <laughs> I, I, I thought that when he when he puts it in again, I just yeah. think, well, I wouldn't want to be the one have to open the snake to, re- exactly. to, to release it because but, I'm standing well back anyway. Yeah, but it would be dead anyway because he can't breathe in there. Yeah. So it's just, that's improbable. And I mean, there's a variety of things that, that you know, are improbable. But but again, I, I think, again, the, the, the sheer um, darkness and physical danger coupled with, you know, Holmes grabbing Watson's arm and waking him up in the night and, blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. This friendship in the face of this grave and bizarre danger is just the most delicious delivery on the Sherlock Holmes promise that, you know, and I can understand why it's many people's, you know, far and away favorite story for that reason. It, it's, it's got everything. It's got the perfect villain because he's physically imposing. Yeah. It, it, it's, got, it's got Holmes being, you know, Holmes kills him. Ultimately, Holmes kills yeah. him. Yes, he does kill him, and he doesn't feel so terribly bad about it. No, but I, I thought it was a very interesting way to end the story, as, as if he's saying, look, I know what you're thinking. Yes, he did kill him, but Sherlock's not bothered. You know what's interesting? Yes, what it's interesting about that they, um, in BBC Sherlock, they they echoed that with, only with Watson, you know, when, he, when Watson shoots the guy who's, who's getting people to kill themselves in the, in the study. The sign, the sign of 4-1, yeah. Scarlet, yeah, Slim Scarlet. And pink and, and for BBC, but yeah, and then Watson says, "Well, he wasn't a very nice man, was he?" <laughs> you know, but basically, that's that's the the story note here with Holmes, and and in the canon, you know, they very much Holmes is in is in service of justice. I mean, he's he's about justice. Yeah. But but he also um, 
he sees shades of gray. He's not a he's not a, an automaton. He's somebody who who understands. Like so, for example, in this particular instance, I don't think he lost sleep over this. No. And you can't blame him. However, that being said, he's never about revenge. A lot of people feel that revenge is justified, but Holmes is not a revenge. Oh, I thought he get evidence in his head. No, I think it was just a. Uh, um... Well, firstly, there's not a great thing he can do to stop it, because yeah. it, it is self-defense. If I get the snake back up into the ceiling, yes, I'd have yeah. ventilated it. It's not going to kill me. And he's not even thinking that. He's just thinking, get away from us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, or let me kill you by hitting you. But, but yeah, he's, he's not aiming to get the snake back to bite the guy. But, yes, it is self-defense. But also, he, it's just, you know, he's, um, uh, his his sense of morality is... is um, it's just so intelligent. It's just so it's rational, but tempered with um, faith in humanity, uh, love for humanity, not like individual humans because they're annoying, but but basically a love for humanity, um, which I I see in him, and um, he, and that's not something you you typically associate with Holmes, um, but you see it when he deals with terrified clients. You yeah. know, you see it when he when he's because he's a person who responds to calls for help. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be so much about his ego, although he takes pleasure in his prowess, particularly his intellectual prowess. In his art. Yeah, his art, yeah. yes. But, he, but, he, but he's about helping, and he's about serving justice. And so we forgive him s small indiscretions or whatever, or things along the way, because the greater good is served. And, and, and there's plenty of them. He, he lets plenty of murderers off. He has let yeah. murderers off. And, and one of the great moments, of course, is in the Blue Carbuncle. Yeah, um, the last, last one we did, yeah, with, with uh, yeah, my man. Yeah, it's, that's a fabulous, fabulous moment. I did a dramatization of that, by the way, and produced it in L.A. a couple of times. Um, and that is just such a fun fun story but it, it, it's again this moment of like he knows where his moral lines are they're just very clear to him and it's certainly true in the speckled band so he's not going to lose sleep over having the, this causing this man's death he's not going to lose sleep for a minute um so i think that you know that just is a further you know a further detail on the portrait of sherlock holmes that that we love to see absolutely absolutely before we go because we're coming up to an hour i've got to ask you you threw out a massive hint then, um, but you didn't tell me which is your favourite Sherlock Holmes story. Yes, and we didn't talk about my books at all either. No, we are coming back to them, don't worry. I've got many questions of them. Okay, okay. Um, so, so I'm sorry, which is my favourite story? Yeah. So, of all the canon, I think my favourite story is um, um, The Second Stain. Yes, you did tell me that, yeah, when we first spoke on Twitter, yeah. That's yeah. right, and, and good news, everyone. Bonnie's agreed to come and do the second stain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid you're on the spreadsheet. Uh, it's well, a done deal. Love to do that one. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a, um, I wrote a story. Uh, actually, it was in the Strand. Um, that is a letter sent by um, the female protagonist uh, explaining herself because it's really quite a mystery. It never really is revealed in the in the. Uh, in the original. Anyway, so yes, that is my favorite, but I do love The Speckled Band so much. How can you not love this one? Because it, it's got everything. It um, um, we'll, we'll finish then with a brief chat about your books, if that's okay. Um, I assume they're all on Amazon things. We can get them from the, 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 the usual places. 
Yes, all the books are available on Amazon there uh, uh, as hardbacks, paperbacks, uh, audiobooks, and uh, ebooks. They're all on Amazon. I say I've already bought them, so I already, <laughs> I already know the Amazon. And you can get them at bookstores. In fact, I would encourage you also to you know, support your support local your local bookstore. Yes, yes, exactly. And yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, one of the things I'm doing during this pandemic is uh, when bookstores are closed, and especially the smaller ones are really struggling, is um, I'm going to start running a contest on my Facebook page. I have a Facebook page for the Sherlock Holmes Adventures by Bonnie McBird, um, and they I'm going to have a, a a contest where you can win a, a gift certificate to a bookstore uh, by various means. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, I like that. I, th I think it's very important to remember that um, you can buy books at places other than Amazon. Yes, and they, they will, even, even in the pandemic, they will get it from, you know, Ingram or whatever the distribution company is and um, and say, and mail it out to you. So anyway, that's another possibility. So they're, But they're available in all forms, all three of my books that are out so far. Any idea when the fourth one's going to be out? Yes, and next, uh, slightly under a year from now. So the first book is um, Art in the Blood, <clears throat> which yep. came out in uh, 2015. And that one is um, set in Paris and London and has to do with, um, well, basically, uh, uh, there's an underlying theme to that book, which is has to do with the the trade-offs of having an artistic temperament, the gifts and the perils. And both of those are very evident in Holmes himself and certainly and in the client and the storyline as well. So um, I, I like to investigate with my books a little bit about the psychology of these characters, yet without crossing a line, without revealing too much, because the mystery of Holmes is one of the excitement, one of the exciting facets of him. But all and also not crossing the line of getting overly personal because then that doesn't feel like Conan Doyle. But I still like to slightly investigate something that has been proposed or set up in the original canon. And uh, in, in the first book, Art in the Blood, it's really about this, this trade-off. Uh, because artists, of course, are, are, are they're the, they're the canaries in the mine, right? Yeah. <laughs> they see patterns before other people do. That's what Holmes does. And he also... Um, he notices details that other people don't, and so forth. He's very. He is. He says many times it's his art. He, you know, we think of him as a scientific scientific thinker, and he is. But scientists do use art. And my computer scientist husband would be the first person to to vouch for that. So, so that that's that one. The the second one, Unquiet Spirits, is uh, examines the uh, belief in ghosts, and but not so much ghosts of go, you know ghost ghosts, although they're in this story. <laughs> in a haunted castle in Scotland, but also the ghosts of our past. Like what happens if we ignore the ghosts of our past uh, and they come back to, to bite you, <laughs> possibly. So there's that one that takes place in Scotland in the south of France. The third book is um, The Devil's Due, which takes place entirely in London and uh, has to do with, uh, well, basically, uh, People who who have have traded something, traded a bit of their soul for the devil, and what that means. <laughs> so um, it has it has some um, some echoes with things that are going on right now. Um, and can you give out any hints about the fourth book? Oh yes. So the fourth book is called The Three Locks. <laughs> it takes place in um, in London and Cambridge. Of course, Cambridge has. 
uh, various locks because of the, the level, the different levels yeah. of the river. And um, there's something rather dire that happens at the Jesus lock in this book. <laughs> and uh, it also involves uh, a stage magician and, um, and something from Watson's past. <laughs> So it's it's quite fun. This, there are several locks involved in this story. Um, one of the challenges I set for myself in writing these books is because because Holmes is so smart and can figure out things so quickly. Uh, Conan Doyle wrote essentially short stories and novellas only because if you write a novel and you present Holmes with a single case, he'll have solved it by page thirty. That's the problem. Yeah, so, that's, that's so, the problem. So what I do is I've con in, in each of the books I've convolved three stories, which 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 are intricately in convolved and so they're kind of like a triple helix and they basically uh, connect and 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 unlock at almost the same time. So that that's the challenge I set for myself in terms of trying to do an extended or a long form Sherlock Holmes. Um, and that's, that was my, that was my intent. So that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, final question then, um, which I ask every guest is you've talked about your favorite Sherlock Holmes story. Be, be nice. What is the one you enjoy the least? Uh, well, I guess it's gotta be the Mazarin stone. Oh, it's every week, John. And it, it's terrible. I mean, it's preposterous, and 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 he, he recycles ideas, and nothing, happens, nothing much happens. But you know, so I, I was asked to um, to uh, give a talk about this, this that story. <laughs> so I went. I, I wish I could show you this, but we're only verbal. But I went online, and I found in a theatrical. Um, I found in a theatrical props shop, and I now have own a, a, a giant yellow jewel about the size of uh, two baseballs. Okay. <laughs> and it's sitting over there on my mantle because if you look, it's a nine. I think it's a ninety carat yellow diamond. Oh, so that's a huge thing. Yeah. So, um, but also there was a play written on it, and so I dug up that play, and um, it's just god awful. Anyway, someone so, wrote a play. Hang on, I can't let that lie there. Someone wrote a play about the Mazarin Stone. Yes, I know it's awful, and I um, and I uh, I'm gonna probably do a little Zoom production of it with my actor friends. Um, but uh, <laughs> yes, it's completely awful. Yes, and yes, it is my my. My least favorite story. The, the reason I have that, you can probably guess, is I've got to find guests for other stories, and um, sometimes they're, they're not always going to be the famous ones. I've been lucky so far. This is the eighth show we've done. They've all been pretty good. Um, poor producer John got to do the case of identity with me, which, which has been our least favorite so far. But, ah. um, but at some point, someone's going to have to do Mazarin Stone, and we've actually got a queue because <laughs> everyone's chosen it. Oh, really? Because they yeah. want to slam this thing. Well, you know, it's. A, it is more fun in, in lots of ways to slam something, but it's, you know, really quite hard to sometimes to highlight what's fabulous about things. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to write bad reviews on Amazon for that reason. It's like, I feel it's too easy, you know, and it, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's hard to find the gold. I'm looking for the gold. Yeah, and that, that's it. It's getting the love between the two. It, it will be done affectionately, I should say, because it's, it's very hard for a mere mortal like me to criticize a man who wrote the Speckle Band. I know, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, the yeah. final problem, the roof parting of the naval treaty, you know, we can interpret. You know, he did all that. I think we can let him off the odd dodgy one occasionally. So, yeah. I think we should get every guest on for, for the Mazarin story. I think we should, should just be like someone's <laughs> sort of Mazarin Zoom meeting. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I actually could 
produce a recording of the play for you, and you could play that. I mean, it's very short because <laughs> there's not much in the story. Um, when you <laughs> say cut, that's now a done deal. You have to do that now. It's probably like I'm a member of a company right now that is doing Shakespeare live on um, you, on um, Zoom. So we go out live every Wednesday night. I've been in two of the productions. I think they've done 10, 10 or 11 so far. They're going chronologically through the uh, Shakespeare uh, works, it, chronologically in the order he wrote them, as believed. And so um, so they, they do it live on Zoom. And they, these are hilarious. I mean, they're, they're straight out, you know, doing the full language and everything. And some of them are quite moving. But they're also funny because you everybody's in their living room or their kitchen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> with impromptu props, you know, and you know, a broomstick is a sword, and you know, it's just like it, they're they're quite something. So, um, so I, I may get together a few of these folks and, and put together a Zoom uh, of the Mazarin Stone for you. Uh, so at least you could hear it. Or be a little radio production. That'll be great. That'll be great, Bonnie. <laughs> we're going to see you again for the um, for the second stain. All right, great to talk to you. And, uh, and by then, you know, you'll be further along with the novel. But um, can we thank you so much for coming along? It's been an absolute hoot to do this. It's been so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bonnie. Bye. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you, too, to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening.